Hello, and welcome to Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 96 with Marielle Rivas, DP of episodes 5 and 8 of season 2 of Perry Mason. Enjoy. Even, you know, you're, you're prepping for movies and stuff, but are you able to, you watching anything cool right now? I'm watching Dead Ringers because two of my friends are directors there, and I, I love the Cronenberg's movie, and I'm really enjoying it. I've really neat. Is it a is it a show? I, I haven't heard of it. It's in Prime Video. It's like a oh. reimagination of that Cronenberg film uh, by Alice Birch, mm. who is like a great scriptwriter, and Rachel Weisz is the leading uh, protagonist. And it's for me, it's really amazing. I haven't finished yet, but I think it's really great yeah what about you shit uh so i'm i'm of two minds because obviously the the nerd in me is like well we just finished the mandalorian we just finished star trek picard you know now now we're on i guess succession and all the standard you know like (laughs) the ones that everyone's watching but uh i got to go to the uh picard season finale they they showed the last two episodes in imax wow so so that was an interesting well, it was, it was really educational. Cause like, I'm not the type of, I like, I have a bunch of friends who are really into like cosplay and stuff. So my buddy kind of halfway dressed up, um, which isn't quite my purview, but it was very educational to see a television show displayed in IMAX, you know, with the, with the correct sound and everything, and then right. go back and watch that on my TV at home and see what the differences are. Cause I think a lot of it's very depressing. I mean, especially if you do a movie, you you know that it needs to be seen in the big screen. Because when you do a TV show, you do it for TV. So there are certain decisions that you make knowing that, right? But when you do a movie, you make other decisions. And then if people watch it in the computer, you're like, nah. It's <laughs> Well, and it also was such a great argument, obviously, for the cinema for seeing movies in theaters, but it also highlighted how people are like, oh, I just have scream, scre- uh, streaming. I don't need to buy Blu-rays or whatever. Cause I'm a big proponent of buying, mo- having the physical media. Cause you don't, you never know if the streamer is going to edit your favorite movie out from under you or something like that. Yeah. But, um, even just like, obviously the, there's an enormous difference between IMAX and, and the, you know, compression that you see on your, uh, television but even just watching like a blu-ray version of a movie versus the streaming like yeah. there's a huge difference that you can see and oftentimes hear if you have like a bare minimum a sound bar but um every time it i don't know why it surprises me every time i'm like oh that's right it was made for this you know <laughs> yes the uh what was the other one the um the other thing i did notice though is because it was shot for television and you can tell me if you think this way. Uh, way too many close-ups for IMAX. I was like right up front. So I'm just like, <laughs> just just everyone is this big on the thing. Whereas I assume for television, you kind of have to shoot that way because you're expecting a much smaller screen. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I don't imagine many like extreme close-up in that huge screen. When you, when you shot, because uh, you shot uh, four features over the past handful of years, right? Two. Two features, three short films, and three... Oh, shorts. Three TV shows, and now I shot a fourth TV show. Do you... Um, how how is How does shooting for... I mean, obviously, we just kind of mentioned some of it, but how does shooting for the big screen, so to speak, uh, differ from shooting on television, just from a um, kind of a practical uh, sense? I think, um, I think it has to do mostly with the fact that movies, like their strength lays on atmosphere. Mm. So you have to create a conversation between a shot, the sound, and the story, of course. Mm. But it's very much about us 
atmosphere more than anything else. And TV, it's about plot and dialogue. Right. It's like sometimes I joke, it's like people talking in rules. <laughs> if you simplify it, though, even though nowadays we know that TV as a medium is progressing incredibly, and many, many shows that are appearing nowadays are very complex and are relaying more and more in atmosphere. Most shows are plot and character and dialogue instead of atmosphere. So that changes everything because you need to, for film, you need to find a color palette, a type of sound that you're imagining in, in a huge space that is gonna touch more subconscious part of the audience. Whereas with TV, you need to think, am I giving this information right? Like, are they gonna understand this plot and this twist of the plot with this type of shot? So it's, for me, a completely different way to to think it's, about a movie and about a TV show, right? Yeah, I guess movie uh, in in a sort of modern parlance, uh, movies are all about the vibes. Yes, yes. That is an interesting, you know, because there's a lot of uh, discourse online about like, oh, you know, what is cinematic, and I, I guess I never really thought about it that like what yeah, obviously you know lens choices and story you know all that, but but at the end of the day, what I've described as feeling is truth, just like. You can have a scene in a movie where someone's literally just quote unquote vibing for five minutes yes. and that that'll play. Whereas in a TV yeah. show, someone would be like, why? That was useless. That didn't fucking matter. Plus, you don't have like you don't have the same focus or concentration and you want the story to advance and make twists. And that's the essence of TV. And it's OK because it's the medium, right? But a movie, for example, in my second movie, I create a whole um, sound that needed to feel like a, how do you say terremoto, earthquake, right? Yeah. We have a lot of earthquakes in Chile. So I know how it sounds because it's a very, very deep sound. And it's, you start to feel like your body's like, because it's very, very deep. And that I, I was only able to achieve thinking that you're gonna listen in a cinema, not, on the TV, if you listen in the TV, it doesn't create that same feeling. And that feeling makes you feel nauseous, scared, but subconsciously, because it's a very, very low tone that you don't really understand what's going on, but you're like, Ugh. and in TV, that would not be effective. Probably you, know, you need to be more, Just it's more the on the surface, you know, it's more on the surface and the movies is more subtext in a sense. Yeah, and, and and TV is more text, even though now they are crossing more and more. But what happens is now, if I see movies that are treated like TV, I'm like, but why don't they do this for TV? <laughs> you know, like now I'm expecting more from movies because as TV advances, you need to have a different way of storytelling visually, right? Uh, in, in in the movies. Well, it's like. Uh... I hadn't really thought about this, but you're right. Like, you know, film is inherently a multi-sensory experience. You've got even theaters that do that, like whole 4D right. thing, you know, or they literally shake the chair and spray water at you or whatever. But yeah. yeah, television is almost closer to a book. And also a lot of people are leave the um, subtitles on, which I know for yeah. people who are hearing impaired or whatever, that's obviously very important. But uh, I find it kind of strange because I'm like, you're missing the acting. Like yeah. at least in the television, they get acting. It's, it's just like you can be doing something else and you're hearing the dialogue because the dialogue provides you information. So like you can be doing something else and you still are connected. But film, as you say, sometimes it's someone quiet, just looking at something and because of the sound and because of the scene that happened prior and after, there is a new meaning that it's created there, right? Yeah, it it is. Yeah, I suppose television until obviously, you know, we've had 
78 inch televisions come out that you know amazing oleds that really can nice deep blacks great colors all that but um until we can really hype up great sound systems that are easy to install in an apartment make even even as cinematic as television shows can get they will never have that multi-sensory experience that is an interesting thought because obviously sound is a very is most important almost but it's yeah, uh, it's 50% of the, no I, I love sound and I think it's 50% of the experience but when you know it's gonna be standing on a TV you make certain decisions because you know the final delivery is gonna be there and that most people have doesn't have like a surround sound whereas with film you do other other stuff because you know it's going to be seen on a theater yeah you have more um not latitude but uh you have more dynamic yeah. range where you can make those i mean latitude in a certain yeah yeah and you have other tools like it's different tools yeah the uh the earthquake thing especially i grew up in san francisco and now i live in la and uh it is hard to explain like i have some yes. friends from like louisiana and stuff i hang out with all the time and, like it's like sometimes you can tell by the weather that it's going to happen yeah. which it's hard to explain yeah. and yeah that that initial there's something in the air that you think oh maybe an earthquake is coming because you, there is something that you feel when you have experienced earthquakes and then it's this sound that is not almost a non-sound, but it, it has a sound. It's very strange. Yeah, it's way, I, uh, we had a huge storm here like a year ago and uh, like lightning was hitting outside my house and stuff. And that was some of the craziest natural sounds I've ever heard in my life um, that I don't think you could accurately replicate. But the, yeah, the, the subsonic rumble of an earthquake definitely is more terrifying than anything because you don't at least with a lightning strike it's over <laughs> with an earthquake right. it's like well we're all on for some ride and then if it goes longer than like four seconds you're like do i need to leave the house <laughs> yes you don't know how bad it's gonna get that's the issue <laughs> like i hope it doesn't go and grow and yeah I saw an interview, uh, speaking at Chile, I saw an interview where you had mentioned that like, uh, filmmaking was banned when you were a kid. Yeah. But movies were not. No. So how? And because, because we had a dictatorship, Pinochet, Pinochet's dictatorship that lasted until 1988. Hmm. So during that time, he closed all film school. He put mi military guys as head of all the universities and they exiled or killed all the filmmakers because all the filmmakers at that time were left leaning. Right. So they didn't want no one informing what was really going on with the torture and the killing of people. So they banned all the artists in a sense so i grew up with that so i'll watch either like at the beginning it was only american movies of course right but right after when the dictatorship ended and a little bit before you know as always when everything is banned a contra culture appears because it's natural so there was this little like art cinema houses where they show and they showed Tarkovsky, for example. So I remember being like really young and going to watch Tarkovsky and Rocky. So I always laugh because my taste or my aim with movies is always do something that has layer and depth and but but also that reaches audiences and it's not like very elite to the highly educated people that can only understand this very particular movie you know like i like the reach so i think that's because i loved as a kid and as a teenager 
European cinema profoundly and American cinema profoundly. And I think my heart is a mix of those two, you know. Did, so was your trying to get into filmmaking couched more in sort of punk rock anti-authoritarianism or that kind of uh, American escapism or, or somewhere in the middle? Oh, yeah. Can you, can you ask the question again in the beginning? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, by, by uh, the dictator banning art school, banning filmmaking, did yeah. that make you want to basically say, fuck you to the government and start making films? Or was it couched more in you just loving cinema and, you know, um, the, abil yes. the, the inability? Now, now I got it. Now I got it. I'm not sure because during... Pinochet dictatorship, I was a kid. It ended when I was 12 years old. Mm. So my family was from the left, but everything that happened, they tried to not tell you as a kid because it was scary, right? But right. It, you knew because it was out there happening. So I don't know if I, if I was fully conscious that my dream was so evolutionary. I just knew since a very early age, I wanted to do that. And also because with some neighbors that funnily enough were throwing a chat and used to throw things at my house at night okay. uh, during the day, we will make movies. So we did like the Godfather kids version with another name and we did like a horror movie. So we did horror movies. I still have them actually. And I was probably like nine or eight. So it's funny to me how these people that hated me because they were kids, they could not comprehend the political side of me. So it was right. like a quote unquote well, hate because we were friends, you know. And they, they take on the uh the politics of their parents. They don't they don't have an opinion exactly. of their own. Exactly. So we did those four movies and it's very interesting to watch because during the dictatorship, mostly radio would inform of the underground things that were happening. And I see the movies and we have like a kid laying down and listening to the radio and it says like a body has been discovered, blah, blah, blah. Because we as kids were picking up on that and it's so right. strange to watch us understanding our our context as that, but I guess also like I always loved it. So it was a mix again. I think it was a way to escape, a way to see other realities, but also a way to rebel. Yeah. I think it was again my heart <laughs> a mix of those two forces that drives like European art house cinemas and American cinema. Yeah. Well, and, and I think too, like, I think it's probably helped you, uh, as an artist, um, listening, have it, having, you know, your childhood couched in radio and stuff. Cause the same, the same way that, you know, people say like, oh, reading books is yeah. important. It's not, it is obviously to get different stories that you wouldn't inherently be drawn to, but I think it, it helps your imagination, you know, because you're not to today, I think because everything is so visual. I've got five screens like literally in front of me right now. Yes. And um it's as a as a somewhat of an educator, uh I find it's difficult to push against like hey, I know it's very flashy to this um you know, whatever YouTube tutorial you like or this photograph that you enjoy uh to want to replicate that. But but um reading a book or listening to the radio and or uh and having those ideas come up from within you creates a unique voice that otherwise you wouldn't have. I, if I, trying to I agree. And on top of that, my parents raised me in a Baldorf school, which was very punk for the time because it was the eighties and no one was doing that. Today, alternative education is very popular, sure. but at that time was completely punk. No one was doing that. We were like 20 kids and we were the second generation. And so I did not have a TV at home, so I read a lot. And on top of that, I am a lesbian, but at that time in a 
such a constrained and repressive society. Of course, I didn't have internet, so I did not. I did not know that that existed. So I actually felt like I was the only one in the world who was oh, feeling like sure. that. So I think that also I was very comfortable reading books and and going to the movies. But I was a very active kid and I was always a leader like saying like let's do this show of we have like a rock concert and we invite our parents like I when I talk to my to these friends from from that era they're like oh thank you for such a fun childhood because you were always making because I didn't have a tv I was always like super active like why don't we do a bike club and we all go out now let's do a soccer club like I was always pushing and pushing things so it was fun <laughs> Yeah, for me, it was, it was strange. Yeah, the uh, I was always you. Well, actually, before I get to that, you you had mentioned earlier that you were making films when you were younger. So was that on like Super Eight or something like that, or how were you constructing these? How are you editing these, especially? It was edited to on edit. camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and it was the camera of the father of these neighbors, but they were the ones in front of us. Because at that time it was super expensive to have a video camera. It was probably a three quarter or something like really particular. But he lent us the camera when we were like editing on the camera because we didn't have any any tools or computers to edit or anything. Yeah, back back when I was uh, younger, it was. <laughs> it's I I keep telling people like. It's like the old man screaming at Cosmo, like, you have it so easy now. Because like even back in the early 2000s, you know, if you didn't have a Mac, yes. you didn't have Firewire, which meant that you couldn't get DV off of your camera. So even though we had digital cameras, I had a really nice Canon XL2 that I still own. We still had to edit in camera because we couldn't get the damn footage into the computer. <laughs> now we have SD cards, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, it took a long time to arrive to like a comfortable place that we have. Well, <laughs> uh, the, um, what was it? Oh, so, you know, obviously just we'll scoot forward a little bit just because I have all these questions and I should ask something. <laughs> um, you know, your, did your first film hit, what was it, 2010? My first feature? Yeah, was, or like the, the first short that, or shorter film or whatever that kind the, of um, the got thing you. Is it, it's funny because I did my first short film when I was 19 at the school and it ended up being a hit and the first queer movie of Chile. I didn't know. I was just doing oh. this documentary, mockumentary because I needed to understand the queer world of Chile that I thought did not exist. And when I encountered it, I wanted to understand what was going on with me because I was not out of the closet and I was trying to figure myself out, which taught me that all the questions I have, it's easy if I put them on the screen. <laughs> right. This is the way I, I, I go to, to, to seek my, my stories. So that short film, I did not have the money to finish it in film because at that time you, and it was. It was a student film and I finished it on a very crappy computer we had in the in the school. But that film, it's now it has a cult status because it's 1996 and it it premiered in Pompidou like a month ago because it became like a huge film. And at the time, because I was a woman and no one spoke about that, and because I was so young, I got a lot of press in Chile and I became kind of famous, very young in my country because of of that short film. And then it took me many, many years until 2010 that I did again a fiction short film and I went to the official competition in Cannes and it's called Block, Blocks, Blockies. Um, and in the meantime, I moved to New York. I had a scholarship, I was living there. Then 9-11 happened. In a couple of years, I came back to Chile because it was too intense to be over there for that period. And when I came back, we we did not have an industry here and we still hardly have one. So I said, well, I need to work. So I called a friend that was a director in commercials and he's like, sure, be my AD. And I'm like, sure. 
And I was doing that and like a couple of months after being an ID, like an agency said, oh, but you have that film that we like. Yes. That's certain. Do you oh, want to direct- slum it as an AD. Right. Like, do you want to direct commercials? And I'm like, because I never watched TV, I did not understand, <laughs> like, why was it funny? Like, I was like, sure, but what is this about commercials? But I thought they have a camera. It was 35 millimeter at that time. So there is no way that you could get your hands on a camera right. here if you didn't direct a commercial. So I said, sure. And I start directing and I was lucky enough that my first campaign was really big and I won a lot of awards. So I quickly had like a huge career doing commercials. And in the meantime, I was developing different movies. But here, the only way we have to finance is a government fund that is really, really hard to to win, especially mm. if you're young, you know, and especially back there, back then. So when I was doing commercials and trying to apply to grants and developing movies, I met the Larraín brothers, who is Pablo Larraín that did Spencer and Jackie and No mm. and a fantastic woman. And they said to me, like, why don't you come direct commercial with us at our company? And we make movies together because we also like movies. We love movies like you. We don't want to do commercials, but we need to do commercials to survive. So let's do it together, the commercials, and then we do the movies together. So, and then I arrived to, in the middle, I went to live in Spain and came back. So I arrived to 2010 with that short film. And two years after, I did my first feature that I went to Sandra's with. With, and I won best script international feature. Damn. Well, you kind of ha- uh, half asked, uh, half answered. Sorry, uh, my question, which was, you know, you you've you had such success doing film, and my question was going to be like, how did you? What were the gigs in the meantime? Because I think that's kind of the unseen um, side of a lot of big DPs, yeah. big directors. Is like they're often shooting, you know, whatever perfume commercials and stuff. Yeah. Um, so how are you bringing those sort of uh, film filmmaking cinematic sensibilities to your commercial stuff or what or were you just kind of taking the gig doing what they wanted not having to stress about it too much No I I, I enjoy I enjoyed them to a point and the good thing about Latam like in the states if you do like fashion commercials then you're going to do only that and if you right. do like TV drama you're only going to have to drama like they're very like this, but in here, I had the opportunity to make comedy, cars, beer, fashion, travel. Like I, I went to, I, I shot also in Spain. I shot in Istanbul. I shot in France. Like so, it gave me, like, um, I was comfortable with the set, comfortable with the camera, comfortable with the lenses. I knew what a color palette, a color touch will do emotionally. So it was a way to train, you know, and it has nothing to do, an effective commercial has nothing to do with a good film and has nothing to do with good TV or a good script. But it was a way, when I went to my first picture, I was extremely comfortable on set because I've been on set already for years. So I was not And also I knew the tools, like the visual tools. I know what a slow motion camera can achieve. I know what this type of sound, because I I was trying and trying and trying these many projects. So I believe in working and I believe a director is a better director, the more range you have. Yeah. So even though I did not like it, because for me it's like, it was always like, what? Like I was a little bit ashamed <laughs> of that because they take themselves too seriously, especially because of that, because I do believe that a- any work you do is worth, is praiseworthy, yeah. praise, you know, because you're working and that is good. Yeah. But but inside the the medium, the people think, and I, and I remember saying, we're not solving how to cure cancer. We're not operating someone that is going to die. Like, why are you all so stressed out? And this is making rich people richer by lying to people. So please like stop. This is not important. Don't call me at 2am in the morning because we're not helping anyone here for real. We're just doing our job and do a good job is very 
important, but relax. You know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. That actually brings up a, a good question. Um, something that I, I certainly as a younger man would let situations that were potentially outside of my control stress me way the fuck out. And, uh, it still happens to me if I get overly, you know, um, overstimulated or whatever, I can get a little short, but I've, you know, spent a lot of years, uh, trying to rein that in and be a little more dialed. And that is because of working on set, you know, you can't be blowing up on people. Uh, you gotta, you gotta be the leader in your case. I'm a DP, yeah. so still a leader in, to a degree, but not. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. You need to be a leader of all your team and have like a precise sense of timing and a lot of things that if you don't control that and you stress out or you love yourself, it doesn't flow there. Yeah. A lot of people will just go off and smoke a bunch of cigarettes and stare at the floor. But I wanted to ask you, uh, how are you as the captain of the ship, um, able to, um, convey that that's the kind of set you want to run that you want people to, yes, you know, obviously there's money involved, so there's going to be stress with the financiers being, you know, in charge of things or whatever, but how do you convey that, um, calm to your crew and have them listen without thinking that you're being naive? Yes. Well, it's because I have worked in different industries. It's like, again, you need to know what tools to take out of the box. <laughs> so for example, in LATAM, the big issue is always you don't have enough money to achieve what is written. Like that's the base of any production, even the big ones is never enough money. So, you know, you need to be fast and you need to be precise. Right. So for example, I arrive, I, I tell the DP, these are the shots. So they, we plan it out. Then I talk to the actors and we go like, I'm very fast on set because I've been on set for 20 years already. So I know how to run a set. So I push them like usually here and go, I go like, let's go, let's go, let's do this because we're always rushing. Right. And if the idea has that, because some ideas do it and some ideas don't, like I prefer the idea to do it because it's very exhausting to be like, Hey, people, let's go. So are you sure? ADs are so important. Yes. But sometimes if the ideas doesn't have that character, because some don't, like I wait for very precise scenes and I start like rushing the rest of it. Like I can shoot and like it happened. Now I just show run a show for Amazon in Argentina. And I went to Uruguay and they are very calm and they drink mate and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going <laughs> to shoot myself because I'm used to faster, right? But they, And you cannot go against the culture of a country. You need to kind of respect that and be patient, right? So I was like, sure. But then sometimes I was watching at the clock and we only had like 45 minutes to do a whole scene. So I would go like, let's go, let's go. And I didn't cut the camera, so I knew my shot. So I go like, let's do that. Now go fast. Go again, and I go, 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 and I can take like shoot and a scene with all the shots I want in forty-five yeah. minutes fast. But I try not to arrive to that if possible. So Latam has a way to be because it's always about how you manage the budget more than anything else, more than the shot you want or how does it look. It's about how am I how am I gonna be smart with the no money I have to do this. Whereas, for example, a production like Perry Mason, mm. like, Great first of all, in the States, there is an industry and it's so big that everyone is very conscious that you need to give a good impression because then people is going to recommend you, right? right? So everyone's arrived half an hour early. They're always like quiet on time. And then if the idea says this, scene takes two hours, it's because it takes two hours. Like you're not going to take longer and you're going to take less. You're going to take exactly what daddy says because it's a perfect oil machine that works amazingly. So for example, in the States, I'm very relaxed. I'm like, yay, thank you guys, because that machine is perfect. So you don't need to push 
because they have the money, they have the scripts, they have the, like the crew is super experienced. Whereas here in Latin, because it's so intense, what usually happens is people in their forties says, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. The pay is not enough. So you usually have young crew. So they are inexperienced, they are unfocused and you need to be like, Hey, come on, like cheer everyone, do this. So it's very different. Like in, in, in Latam, you're a producer, a director, and an AD right. all in one, because everyone asks you, what do, what are we going to do? Whereas in the state, like the DP already knows, like everyone knows, no one is asking you like, where do I put this Where? So it's, it depends on who you have in front of you, how you relate to your crew and to the set, because different sets needs different sides of yourself, you know? Yeah. Uh, as this, you know, this podcast is like half entertaining, half educational and probably two thirds annoying because of me, but, uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, uh, I gotten better at not interrupting people. The first few was like, Ooh, let's chat. <laughs> people were like, dude, I don't fucking care what you have to say. Um, <laughs> but, uh, on the educational side of things, you know, having those younger crews, especially, um, what are some skills that maybe you see, uh, those younger crews lacking that maybe people should, um, whether they be soft skills or hard skills, but, uh, uh, things that you like to see in a younger crew member. Yes. Again, it's very different Latam than the States because yeah. in Latam we do not have an industry and because our countries are smaller, everyone knows everyone. So when you're in the set, this person is going to be the boyfriend of this other person and this one is married to this other person. So no one is scared of losing a job for the future. I don't mm -hmm. mean right on the spot. So they are not focused and they are not concentrated enough in the state. I don't think that happens because it's such a big industry and the competition is so high that if you're not on top of your game and you're always focused, then you're never going to work again. So oh. on one side is always be focused, always be like you can detect when young people is going to do good because they're hungry to help to be there to listen like it's an attitude like he's in there even in the way they look at you or they ask a question or, or they're like hey sorry can i ask you this or do you need this or that like you know who's gonna have a good career because there is a, a passion mm. and a way to relate on set that you're like oh this person is like is talented like you can tell that that person is going to do good. But I think it's a predisposition to work. Yeah. You know, like a, a, a hunger. They need to stay hungry. Like be, don't be annoying, but there is something in the way they relate to said and how attentive they are to things that it gets noticed, you know? Like that energy, you, you feel it and you appreciate it when it's close to you yeah it's the uh you know I, I had like a few thoughts at once but i don't want to be like mean to certain people but like you know you, you'll get someone from a, a very prestigious film school who can walk on set and be like i know exactly what i'm doing and then and then uh they don't they never do and it doesn't matter what film school you went to a good one a bad one like set is so much different than the uh academic uh explanation of what it is because right. it's so, as you're saying, um, it's a lot more personal than that, than those hard skills. Um, yes, it has a lot to do with diplomacy in a sense and relationships and, and enthusiasm, because I think most of the people that does film, especially in Latin, because we don't get paid as good as in the States. So most people do it out of love. So you can sense when someone is connected with passion through their craft, that in Latin is always the case because you do it because you love it or, or else you won't do it. But maybe in the States it's easier to have people that are just 
going to the office in a sir right and and that way to relate it also it felt it's received different you know yeah well hopefully the people that uh are just going to the office quote unquote at least aren't freaking out which <laughs> sure is you know kind of cool yeah. cucumbers all the grips are always very chill until they're not but <laughs> yeah, I think they grieve, the groups are going to the office, but they love the office. You know, yeah. like when I said they're going to the office, I mean, they're doing a job that it's like, oh, yes, this pays the bills. But it's more than that. And of course, a lot of people is very professional and cool and go to the office because it's our job. But right. the passion, it's there, even though they are like. In their 60s, you can tell, like, they want to do the perfect shot. They want to, like, every single thing they do, it translates passionate. Well, and to your point, like, I think it's very easy to talk about um, passion and, you know, people saying, oh, you'll never work a day in your life if you love your job. When it comes to filmmaking or woodworking or photography or painting or any of these more um, inherently artistic forms, but I think that passion, this is just for anyone listening who's not a filmmaker, like that passion can be anything, you know, it, it can be, yes. sh- uh, chefs maybe is a bad example because that's creative again, but there are non-creative, I'm sure there's a, there's an accountant out there who just loves like dialing in people's finances and like it brings them a ton of joy and that's like the perfect job for them. And, and that's, uh, as you were saying, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a job, but it, it's applaudable to be doing that yeah. job. You know, there's no, there's no shame in the game, as it were. No, no, not not only creative jobs need passion. I think all the jobs need passion. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I did want to talk, uh, obviously, more about Jerry Mason because that's what you're here to talk about. But uh, I had actually not um, seen the show yet, uh, oh. so I, but I did. <laughs> I, I watched your episodes. Uh, just to get okay. kind of, and it uh, looks really cool. So I'll have to go back and watch the show. But I did want to talk about, um, you know, I had, I had read somewhere that, that uh, well, the show is very kind of noir, neo-noirish, but I kind of wanted to know your approach to taking those sort of maybe noir tropes and also the look. I love the look of the show. Uh, <laughs> um, so we'll get to that in a second. But uh, the sort of balancing the noir and the modern because it's not it's not i mean this is more look but like it's not a show that inherently screams 30s or 40s or whatever but you know the costume design obviously the production design um the music especially really evokes that feeling without you know putting a film grain filter right you know over everything to be so um garish about it you know yeah so why is the question? Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's the other thing. The, my other problem is sometimes I'll just ramble. Uh, so, but I was going to ask, like, what was your approach to um, creating that noir aesthetic and and balancing it with the modern? Because you could have gone like, maybe not because the show already exists, but uh, you know, black and white, hard window slashes the whole thing, um, and it's not that. Yeah. Yes, you do have a point that the show already exists, and also the showrunners, as they always said. They wanted to let the shine come in because season one was a bit too dark. Mm. That was the impression of the producers, right? So they wanted to make it lighter. Of course, it's noir, but they didn't want to go, for example, as far as use a Dutch angle in in, in a shot. But it's right. very noir. But I do love to research before like I do anything and I'm thinking about how to shoot. So I did research a lot of noir films, a lot of films from the, from the time. And I do, I look at pictures of the era. I look at photographers that I like. I look at paintings that I like. And then I let the script talk to me in a sense, because I like, I think we all want to be connected to the characters. And for example, episode five was very much about like how they they face moral and ethical questions and they need to make a decision. And that makes me want to be close to them, like physically close to them with the camera. Why so In episode five, I went like 
close with the camera. So like if I will do like a, a close up, it will be with a, a wide lens, but I will be physically close instead of a long lens from far away. It was more that approach. So, and also, of course, that show needs to have a scope. Need to have like, it's big, right? You see the city, you see like this big wide shot or these connecting shots between a scene. So I spent a long, long time thinking (laughs) about like the shots that I need and all of that. And then I like to, I create even like a, a folder with reference of each single um, sheet. And then I ask the production designer for the floor plans and I draw how I think I would like everything to move. And then I discuss, of course, with the DP because they have also amazing ideas. And sometimes they say, oh, I see your point, but I will do something like this other thing. Or, or maybe they say, this is more Perry Mason than these. So, so all that is helpful and it's a collaboration, you know, it's very collaborative, especially the DP, you know, cause it's someone that knows the visual style of the show so profoundly that this conversation is going to occur. But for me, when I read a script, some reference come right away to my mind in the scenes because I like the cinema that is always conversing with cinema. And then I research like particular stuff for each scene. And then I talk to the DP and we go through the shots and we re redo it. And then when you're on set, sometimes you toss all that out and you do something new because the actor says, oh, I want to move this way or this other way. And you're like, oh, okay, so now we were going to shoot it like this. And, but you are prepared enough to toss everything and know how to manage your set without falling behind. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could, because I'm a DP and technically this is a cinematography podcast uh, on most days. Uh, what was your relationship like? Because you had two, you had two separate DPs, right? For five and yes. eight. Um, yes. What was your relationship like with those two, and how yes. how were their approaches different and yet the same? They were very different, but they arrived to the same result, which was very interesting. Because, for example, I'll I'll do an example in court. Elliot Rocket, who is the director of VP of episode five, I had all my my camera angles draw, like like I draw everything in different colors. And he's like, okay, we're going to do everything from this side to that, from white to small. And then we change, we do the other side, and then we do laterals, for example. Right. And he was like, like, he will see my drawings and he will say, okay, so we're going to do this three camera position and then this and then this. And then that's the way we've approached with Elliot. But with Darren Tiernan, who is the DP of episode eight, he didn't like that because he will look at my my drawings and he will say, mm, I'm going to put this cover here, this here and this here because I don't want this light interfering in this face. So it was that was on his mind because I would say, Darren, these are the shots. These are my drawings. He will look and say, okay. And he will position the three cameras as his tall fit for his lighting. Mm. So, and both achieved great results, but it was a different approach to how to position the cameras on the set and how to achieve all the shots I wanted in a day, you know? Right. Yeah. The, the wide close, close is pretty classic, but, uh, I think. The, uh, so did on episode eight, were you deploying more cameras than in five? No. Okay. We have, we have usually two cameras and for, for the scenes of the court, three. And some scenes that had a lot of extras, three, but mostly court, the rest of the time they were always two. Yeah. The man, I'm jumping all around in my head because I got, I literally just watched the episodes like the, the color and the lighting, obviously color, bit of the colorist, but also the production designer. There's a wonderful warm tones and blues and greens, uh, especially in like, um, whatever, like home office it was and stuff. And like, very, very pretty show. Um, but, uh, yes, how they, did the- they, they, 
they search for that warmth because in if you see season one, it's very dark. All the walls are dark, mm. so it's a different contrast. And now they went with these more warm colors on the walls, so it creates a different feeling. You know? Yeah. How did between the two the two DPs was there a change in lighting approach as well, or mostly just uh, camera placement? Probably, yes. But I, I mean, everything looks like it's just lit by the sun. But you know, that's yes. that's the mark yes. of a good DP. This is why I'm telling you, like, probably yes. But I, because when they're planning their shots, I'm doing something else. I was not that aware. Sure. Of yeah, yeah. What exactly they were doing? I was just saw the the result there, and they were the same show yeah and because they see the camera placement differently i'm sure they see the placing of the lights different i'm sure yeah um i had read that and this probably shouldn't well it probably will surprise people but like uh there's a lot of vfx in this show yes but you wouldn't know it because it's not no uh, you know dinosaurs and explosions right um can you walk me through kind of what those VFX shots were and how you yeah. planned for those and manage those? Yes. In episode five, for example, the stadium that opens the the episode, of course, it's a full stadium. So what we did is when they look, there is a shot from behind them that it comes from up and behind them. When And the, you see like the half-built stadium. So for that, and they place a green screen in front of them mm. so they could, you know, like do this and then construct the rest. But when we look the opposite way, when they are down on the stadium, on the grass, like the production designer put like dirt and he built like this half constructed stadium as a set. And then they retouch a lot of like... Uh, screens and little things that were on the back that, of course, they could not take out. That was afterwards, but they were always aiming for the more the the real stuff. You know, like we did not use that many green screens, to be honest. Like mostly it was a good, very, very smart scouting because of episode five, I remember that stadium and I don't remember I remember like a street at night outside like this um, hotel in the African-American neighborhood that Paul's goes to I remember one shot that we put very far away we placed very far away a green screen so they might have retouched like a background uh, building or for another scene that is in Agasivo. I remember we had like buildings, but I was mindful of not touching them with the heads of right. the characters. Or when we did Olvera Street, of course, in the background, we also had a green screen because we shot it right in front of Olvera Street and we created again the, the Keith Cunningham, that is the production designer, created this great Olvera Street. But in the background, we saw, I think, I don't remember if it's called the 101, but one of a highway. So they placed that, that green screen. Either the 101 or the 405. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and they built a city hall, for example, in the background. That is very, you almost, you cannot notice it. it's, it's post-production. Um, I think episode five were those like little places and episode eight Oh, yes. There is a shot, a reverse shot on City Hall that we see Paul and Perry talking and Della is back, is back there talking to the press. And of course, what you see that way is not an old building and they placed like an old building over there. Yeah. But I just think we did more green screen for episode eight that I remember. Sure. Uh, that just made me think of two things. One, is City Hall the L.A. library? 
I mean, sorry, is the is the courthouse the LA Library? No, it's the it's the city hall. Oh, oh, sorry. Okay, you said that, and then my brain immediately went. I think it's the library. Um, <laughs> it looks a lot like the downtown library, but I guess all that architecture. I'm really, I'm really trying, uh, getting more interested in like old LA architecture, because uh, LA is such a weird mishmash of yes, I architecture. W- when I was there, I I lived in New York, and you know, like when I was young, so I was like, hey, I don't like LA, and I always visited like, like small a smaller amount of time like and now that i stay long long and i research the history of it and i remember driving around with my wife in the neighborhood to understand where the story takes place i was amazed and i start deeply loving it you know i was like wow this is so insanely and insane and beautiful yeah it's really you do have to become kind of an architect no sorry uh archaeologist Yes. If you if you want to be like a, a, if you want to call LA your home, you really do have to start becoming a forensic anthropologist and an archaeologist just to learn about. Because you know all these beautiful buildings from the Art Deco era are just buried underneath billboards and skyscrapers. You know, except for the skyscrapers that were made back then. But um, my my other question was going to be, uh, what was your discussions like with I, I guess with those few VFX shot? Maybe it wasn't as big of a deal, but um, your discussions with the VFX supervisor, because uh, I've heard you know horror stories of where a director just comes oh, in no. and goes like, "We'll I, throw a green love, screen up." I love VFX, and because in commercials you do it a lot, I know mm-hmm. the more you plan it together with the VFX people, the better it res- the result. So I like to plan really ahead and listening to them and say like, "This is what's gonna happen," and don't don't just you do what they know it's better you know so it was very easy but because i like to involve them from an early start did how much uh sort of leeway were you given because you're coming into a show that's already you know you're doing the finale too which is pretty uh it's a that's a nice thing you know thing for them to trust you with um how much leeway were you given versus like, oh, this is Perry May, you know, you're handed a, a lookbook basically or whatever, you know, a show Bible. Um, how much? No, we, we did not, we were not handled a show book. Of course, I study very much season one and then I study all the dailies of episode one, two, three, four. And I went to the sets of the directors of episode one, two, and three, four, because I like to see. I wanted to see how the crew was working, how they were approaching scenes. And they gave you a lot of freedom. Like they're very like show, the showrunners and, and Tim Downey are very generous and open to collaboration with the directors. So they are not at all like, of course, sometimes they say, hey, be mindful of this or that. Like maybe, like, I don't know, like, Remember, we need a lot of shots of the jewelry. Like, they are going to help you if they think something is not working. But So it ties into very... the other episodes. Yeah, but no, I, 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 I don't know. Like, I think all the directors were really good. Like, I, I love, like, and they were really generous. Like, because I did five and eight, I also went to the set of Nina, for example, like six or seven, and I was trying to see what she was doing with the episodes to have always a conversation with all the episodes. And and I, I, I shot a lot of like some scenes of episode one and episode two as well. So I don't know, it was, and also the repeats, they really, really know the style of the show. So if they tell you, no, this is too much or this is not part of the show, they know as well. So I think, as I said, and because this crew was so amazingly talented, like these people, I was like in awe of all of them. <laughs> like it was a lot of trust and collaboration, to be honest. Yeah. I, uh, we're starting to come up on time here. I want to be mindful of, uh, your time, but I did want to ask kind of going back to the beginning of this conversation. Um, well, you don't need the whole backstory. Uh, I wanted to ask about the importance of film festivals 
for a uh, filmmaker, especially one that's not just starting out, obviously, but a young, early in their career, or how important are film festivals and why? It's very important. And I always say to my younger friends or filmmakers that ask for an advice, I said, try to do a really, really good short film that shows your voice. You need to find your voice, your visual style that doesn't look anything like anyone else. Because if you do good with one short film, that will propel and make people trust you to do a feature film. And then if your feature films are good and you win awards and you go to good festivals, then they will hire you for TV. So it's it's like a place in festivals. It's a place where, where they're eager to find new voices. They will support you if they see something in you that they like. So you create also a community with that festival and, and, and the filmmakers you start meeting because then all the people that is at the same time in the festival becomes your, your friend. And for example, I met Antonio Campos before he did his first feature film, like in a festival that we're, we're both pitching, pitching our films and, and that happened with me and a lot of other filmmakers that today are very accomplished. And it's nice because they become your friends and your your group. And you can always go back to them and say, hey, what do you think of this or that? Because you knew each other in a very early moment of the career. And they will always help you. And so, and also, what's the name of the people? Like the programmers mm-hmm. or even the festival. Like there is, when you go to a festival, it's only people that love film. So it's very beautiful, like going to Disney for a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and you're going to make contacts that can make your films better. So, like, it's important to focus in a short film that shows you your voice, what are your interests, what kind of stories you want to tell, and how you're going to tell that story that is different to the rest, because that opens doors always, yeah. especially nowadays. That it, the, the market, the industry is more open for every any type of different people. Yeah. So why would you want, I know the answer to this question. Why would you uh, want to focus on making a short film instead of doing a lot of jobs and putting together a cool reel? When you say a lot of jobs, what, because what kind well, of jobs? Just, just to be able to make a reel. Like why, why are basically, why focus on a short film instead of trying to, take on any kind of commercial film, whatever, uh, to make or re- or even I saw one guy, smart idea, it got him certain work, but he invented a reel. He was a DP and he just went off and shot only shots for the reel. There was no project attached to them. Well, I think it depends on what is your, like, what is your lane? But I think in the case of a director, like, and if you also write your stuff, it shows you as an artist, like a short film. If you just do a job for other person, like a commercial, yes, it shows you your have like a an eye for things or a visual style. But that is you attending a client. So it's not you, you, it's not your voice. It's your voice for someone else. So a short film allows you to really, really show your voice, your interest, your ethical look on life, the questions that are interesting for you, the stories that you love. And this is what producers are looking for, these new voices. Yeah. The uh, What's funny is I went to Arizona State, which uh, I don't know if you know anything about the American university system, but known as a huge party school, uh, which was a lot of fun from what I remember. And um, the funny thing was the film school was was couched in ethics-based filmmaking and all the various um, things that that means, Uh, you know, and it it did have a lot to do with like, what are you saying? Not only what are you saying with the script, but what are you saying by the jobs you take, the people you hire, the people you don't hire, you know, all these various things. So um, interesting to hear you say that. But um, I'm going to let you go here, but uh, because we're time's up, but uh, I end every podcast with the same two questions. 
Um, and I've been interviewing so many TV people that this one doesn't quite make sense, but here we go. Uh, we're sticking with it. If you were to program a double feature with Perry Mason and another show or movie, maybe your episode, but you know, in general, uh, what would that other show or movie be? Wow. How difficult your question. <laughs> no, the, the next one's worse. <laughs> That's insane, but I can think of two movies that I think it can go well with Perry Mason this season. Sunset Boulevard. Ooh. And also a Carol Reed movie that I completely forgot the name because I have a very bad memory. So when you ask me these specific things, I'm like, what? I'm, I'm Nemo Story, you know, but let's say Sunset Boulevard because the other, I'm not going to remember the other name. People can Google it. Uh, but it's a noir. It's a noir, like um, one of the biggest noir in the history of cinema. Don't I don't remember the name. No. Wow. I just picked one. I don't even know who's in it. <laughs> it worked for me at a trivia the other week. I just have the, I have the criterion. I haven't watched it yet, but the, I have the, the criterion. The third, I don't know if oh, Odd third Man, Man Out. Third Man or Odd Man Out. Because they have an English similar... Similar names. Right. It's one of, of those two, but one of the men of Carol Reed. <laughs> there you go. Uh, second question. This one's going to be harder. Um, a lot of times on podcasts, I've seen people ask, oh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? So being a contrarian, I want to know what's the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? <laughs> <laughs> the worst piece of advice? I do not remember. Or maybe the worst piece of advice you've seen given. All the advice I get, I have the luck to always being able to call really smart, talented people for advice. So their advices are good. Sometimes I don't listen to them and I do the opposite. And that's my problem. That's that's when I go wrong, but they always give me the proper advice, to be honest. Uh, I've had a few people go like, oh, what's, what's yours asking me? And I'm like, oh, I can't remember because I've, for the longest time, or the first 25 years of my life, I just wouldn't listen. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. I'm going to go try my thing. And sometimes my thing would work, but not often. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for chatting with me. Uh, we'd, I'd love to have you back on uh, next time you're able to share what you're doing, especially after, you know, whatever film you're prepping right now. Sure. I'll, I'll be happy. Awesome. Thanks. Well, uh, I'll let you go. Take care. You too. Have a good weekend. You too. Oh, that's right. It's the weekend. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the Yep at Our Matbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>